importance of a healthy family is our topic on tonight's conference pulpit message from Gary Chapman, our speaker, all this week. Dr. Chapman is the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages book and series. He is the director of Marriage and Family Life Consultants. With his extensive pastoring and marriage counseling experience, he travels the world presenting seminars to couples who want to improve their marriage relationship. In addition to his busy writing and seminar schedule, Dr. Chapman is the senior associate pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he has served for nearly 50 years. Here's the final message from Dr. Gary Chapman this week, Five Signs of a Healthy Family. You know, we've talked so much in the last 20 years about dysfunctional families that almost everyone I meet thinks they grew up in one. In fact, they come into my office for counseling and they sit down and often the first thing they say is, Dr. Chapman, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. And they start telling me how bad it was. Well, I want to suggest to you that we are never going to have better families by focusing on dysfunctional families. We've got to focus on the real thing. What does a functional family look like? You know, when, when they're teaching tellers in a bank how to spot counterfeit bills, they don't show them a lot of counterfeit bills. What they show them is the real thing. If you focus on the real thing, you'll recognize the counterfeit. So what I want us to do this morning is not to talk about dysfunctional families. I want to talk about what do healthy families look like? Because if you don't have a clear picture of what a healthy family looks like, then you're not likely to create one. So let's turn, to, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 5 and listen to the Word of God, which has a great deal to say in this passage about healthy families. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine. Incidentally, that's good advice. No family was ever helped by someone getting drunk. A lot of families got hurt by someone getting drunk. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What is the promise? That it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Amen. The Word of God. Now, from that passage, I want to suggest five signs of a healthy family. First of all, in a healthy family, there will be an attitude of service. And I do want to suggest you write these down because at the end, I'm going to give you a take-home quiz, okay? An attitude of service. Now, look at the words in this passage that talk about the different family members. It says, first of all, that wives are to submit. Can we have all the wives just say that, wives submit? Okay, then it says that the husbands are to love and give. Could all the husbands say that? And then it says that children are to obey and honor. All the children. And then it says the fathers are to instruct. All the fathers. Now look at, look at those words carefully. Every one of those words require an attitude of service. You see, he starts off by, by saying in verse 21 that service is to be a way of life. We're to be submitting ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. We're to serve each other out of reverence for Christ. Incidentally, this is what makes a church work. A church will not be a church if people are not serving each other reaching out with an attitude of how can I enhance your life? What can I do for you? But it's also what makes a healthy family. It's the attitude of the father and mother serving the children, the father serving his wife, the wife serving her husband, the children learn how to serve each other and how to serve their parents, and then we transport that outside the family and we go out to the community to be serving. That is a healthy family. Actually, it is very difficult to reject service. I remember the young man who said to me, Dr. Chapman, I got married, and for the first month of our marriage, my wife served me breakfast in bed. He said, it took me a whole month to get up the courage to tell her that I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> it's difficult to reject someone who's serving you. I did a little research on my own some years ago, and I found out that not a single wife in the history of this nation has ever murdered her husband while he was washing dishes. Not one. It's difficult to shoot a man who's washing dishes. You see, children come at this in a very natural way. When they're, when they're young, what, what do children say? Mommy, can I help you set the table? Mommy, can I help you? Daddy, can I help you? I mean, this is, this is, this is a part of who we were created to be. We were created to serve. Now, I don't know why we lose that by the time we get to be teenagers. But the reality is, in a healthy family, whether they're little children or whether they're teenagers or whether it's mom and dad, we have an attitude of serving each other in the family, and then we transport that to the larger community. 
So I want to give you some ideas on how to build this into your family. First of all, I want to give you, a, let me just say this, that service is to be a way of life. It's not just something we do once in a while. It's something we do all the time. But how do, we, how do we build this into our lives? I want to give you a couple little word games that you can play in the family to make this happen. One is what I'm calling, uh, I really appreciate that. And the way, the way it works is that one of you, one family member says to another family member, one thing I did to serve you is I made your oatmeal this morning or something. And the other person says, I really appreciate that. You see, the reality is that we are already doing a lot of service in the family. Somebody in your family is buying food. Somebody in your family is cooking food. Somebody in your family is washing dishes. Somebody in your family is vacuuming floors, and I could go on. The fact is, we're already doing service in the family, and this is a way of highlighting it. This is a way of putting it on the front burner in which we're acknowledging to each other how we served each other and we're expressing appreciation for that. A second little game you can play is, do you know what I would like? And you tell something you would like. And their response, I'll try to remember that. They're not promising to do it. That would be manipulation if they have to do everything you, you would like. But no, you're giving them information. If you would like to serve me, then here's one thing that would be really good. I would really like this. And so you tuck that away in your mind, and hopefully you'll decide that you want to do that. But let me give you some other ways to take service beyond the family. Because it should start in the family, but it should go beyond the family. And one way to do that is to have a daily sharing time in which each family member gets to share with the rest of the family. One act of service I did today is... So here's the family sitting around the table or maybe sitting in the, in the den and everybody gets to tell one thing they did to help somebody else today. So little Johnny says, uh, Mary was sitting beside of me and uh, her pencil fell off and it broke and I took it and sharpened it and I gave it back to her. And the rest of the family says, Yay, Johnny! And then little Mary gets to tell something she did. Then mother gets to tell something she did and daddy gets to tell something he did and the family gives each of them a round of applause. What are we doing? We're trying to communicate to each other that our family is in the business of service. We are here to help people. And when you help people, you're doing a great thing. Another way we can foster this in the family is that we can do, we can have a family service project in which the family works together on serving people outside the family, such as baking cookies and taking them to someone who's homebound, or raking leaves for the elderly. In North Carolina, where I live in the fall, the leaves get beautiful for about six weeks. <laughs> then they fall off, and they cover the yard. And if you don't get them up, they kill the grass. My, my wife and our, our children used to do this when they were young. I'd get a whole family in the car, I'd put the rakes in the trunk, and I'd go knock on, we'd just drive through the neighborhood looking for a yard that had leaves in it. And I'd knock on the door. And I would say, I'm Gary Chapman. I live over and I'd give them where I live. And I'd say, I got my wife and family with me. And I said, uh, we're trying to teach our children how to serve people. And if you don't mind, we'd like to rake your leaves for you. 
and they would typically say, say what? <laughs> and I would repeat my little speech. And, and many times they would say, oh, I will pay you to do my leaves. I've been looking for somebody to rake my leaves. I said, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not here to make money. We're trying to teach our kids how to serve people. And we would just like the opportunity to serve you by getting your leaves out. You know, I never had anybody that wouldn't let me rake their leaves. And the kids loved it. And the part they liked best was when you get the leaves in a big pile and you jump in the pile. Yeah, it's fun. So, service projects. What I'm saying is this. As Christians, service is to be a way of life. Listen to these words. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it with your whole heart as though you were doing it for Jesus. That takes it to a higher level. You see, when I'm cleaning the toilet for my family, it's not just for my family. I'm cleaning the toilet for Jesus. And if you, if you realize that when you're cooking, you know, or you're, whatever you're doing for the family and beyond the family, you're not just doing it for them, you're doing it for Jesus. And it lifts it to a whole other level. And, and listen to these words that Peter said about Jesus. This is in Acts 10, verse 38. He said about Jesus, He went about doing good. It's a one-sentence definition of the lifestyle of Jesus. He went about doing good. Is this not to be our theme? Is this not to be our lifestyle? That we go, go about doing good? Well, shouldn't that start in the family? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, about himself? He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for others. And we follow in his steps. We are here to serve others in the name of Jesus. Well, let's start that in the family. A healthy family, the family members will have an attitude of service, both to family members and then to their larger community. A second characteristic of healthy families is there will be intimacy between the husband and the wife. Listen to this verse, verse 31. It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's talking about deep, deep intimacy. In a healthy family, the husband and the wife will have a deep, intimate relationship. Now sometimes when you talk about intimacy, men will think immediately about the sexual part of the marriage, but it's far deeper and broader than that. It's intellectual intimacy. In a healthy marriage, the husband and wife will be sharing their thoughts, their opinions, their desires, and they'll be able to share them freely with each other without sense of condemnation. You see, the reason some couples don't have intellectual intimacy is that one of them will share an opinion and the other will say, that's stupid, that it? Or they'll share a desire, and the other will say, well, we can't, we can't do that. I mean, you know. And so eventually they just stop sharing their opinions, and they stop sharing their desires, because they always get clobbered. But in a healthy family, the husband and wife will share opinions and desires with each other in an open and free and accepting sense. And it will also be emotional intimacy, not just intellectual, but emotional intimacy in which we're sharing our feelings. We are, we are emotional creatures because we're made in the image of God. 
and we have both positive and negative emotions. We feel anger sometimes. And in a healthy marriage, in a healthy uh, family, a husband and wife will be able to say, Honey, I'm feeling angry right now. But don't worry, I'm not going to attack you. But I, but I do need your help because this bothers me. And you're able to share that, that emotion and process that emotion. And you'll also be able to share, you know, I, I feel disappointed today because what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. And I'm really feeling disappointed. And the other person will accept that and not try to talk them out of it, but just say, honey, I can see why you'd be disappointed. I, I'm sure I would feel the same way if I were where you are. But you'll also be able to share uh, positive emotions, exciting emotions with each other. One of the things I encourage couples to do is to have a, the two of you to have a daily sharing time in which you just share with each other something that happened in my life today and how I feel about it. Maybe share two or three things that happened in your life today. You see, we live, we live most of our days apart. I mean, the husband's working here, wife's working here, and we have very little time together, really, when you look and get around to it. And, and so we come home, and one says to the other, how things go today, honey? And the other says, fine. Fine. We've been apart ten hours, and fine summarizes ten hours of life. No, no, no. Tell me something that happened today doesn't have to be spectacular. A husband may say, honey, I, I had a drink of water at 1030. <laughs> well, how did you feel about that? I, I felt refreshed. Yeah, I felt refreshed. Anything, just something that happened today and, and how you feel about it. It's building intellectual, emotional intimacy with each other. But also, it involves social intimacy. It involves doing things with each other. Sharing experiences with each other. Actually, coming to church is a social experience because you're doing it with other people and you come to worship God together. So I'm asking you, if you're married, have you been out of the house together lately? Do you do things together? doesn't have to be spectacular, but you go out and do things together. And then there's spiritual intimacy, sharing our spiritual journey with each other. You know, we're not always on the same page spiritually. Sometimes there's a person that grew up in a church and, and they were really, really walking with God and their spouse has just been a Christian for six months and, and, and you, you don't expect them to be where you are. We don't have to be at the same place, but we share with each other our journey. We can do that by coming to church. There's something about standing beside your spouse and hearing them sing the songs that we just sang that communicates to each of you, we're in this thing together, you, me, and God. So we can share in worship, but also we can share in prayer. Would it surprise you if I told you that not more than 15% of Christian couples pray together every day? If you don't count, thank you for the food, amen. Now, I'm not going to clobber you. I'm just going to teach you an easy way to pray together. It's called silent prayer. Whew. Sounds easy already, doesn't it? Here's the way you do it. Husbands and wives, listen to me. Here's the way you do it. The two of you hold hands. You close your eyes. You pray silently. And when you get through praying, you say amen out loud so they'll know you're through. And you hang on until they say amen. Now, is there anybody here that thinks you couldn't do that? But if you'll start praying together silently every night, 
about six months down the road, one of you will slip up and pray out loud. And when you do, you'll break the sound barrier. But if you never pray out loud, it'll help your intimacy, your spiritual intimacy, if you pray silently together. And then we also can build spiritual intimacy by sharing scripture. You know, you, you have your personal devotional time and God speaks to you. And you say to your spouse, honey, I want to share this with you. I mean, this was really encouraging to me today. And you share something God spoke to you about. Now, don't, don't use the scripture to preach to them. You know, I was reading the Bible this morning, and I think you need to hear this. No, no, no. Spiritual intimacy, sharing our journey with each other. Then there's physical intimacy. In a healthy family, the husband and wife will have physical intimacy. You'll, you'll catch them holding hands. You'll see them kissing. You'll see them hugging each other. And the whole sexual part of the marriage will be, will be a wonderful thing for them. It's a part of a healthy family. Physical intimacy. Sharing our bodies with each other. I hope, I hope if you're married and you have children at home, that your children catch you kissing. And you know what they do when they see you kissing. If they're little, they come in and get in between you. I, I, I would also encourage you, if you're married, that when you get out of the car and you're walking somewhere together, just hold hands. Now, if your kids are little, you hold one of their hands, too. But let them see you holding hands. And if you ever go to the shopping mall together, I suggest you stop right there in the middle of the mall and hug each other and kiss each other. And all the teenagers in that mall are going to say, look at old man and woman. Look, 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 look. I'll guarantee you some of them have never seen their mom and daddy hug each other. Didn't Jesus say this is the way they will know that you are my disciple by the way you love each other? What's wrong with a husband and wife showing a little love in public and letting teenagers see that they're couples that love each other? Physical intimacy. There's a third characteristic of a healthy family, and that is the parents will teach and train the children. Chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I don't know why he says fathers don't exasperate. Amen. I mean, don't mothers exasperate too? I don't know, guys. Maybe we do it more than they do. You know, some, some of us guys are driven. You know, I mean, we're driven. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, sometimes it's rooted in childhood, and we're trying to prove to our fathers that we're men. I, I don't, I don't, we, we, some of us are driven, and, and we drive our children because we want them to be successful. And sometimes we drive them beyond their capacity. And that's when the child says, I don't ever please my father. <laughs> if you ever hear your child saying, I don't ever please my father, you'll know you're pushing too hard. Not a good thing. He says, don't exasperate your children. Certainly we have expectations of them in keeping with their age, but we don't exasperate. We don't push them to the point of giving up. But on the other hand, the positive side is, he said, we bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is both parents. I mean, we're parenting children. Those are very different words. The first word uh, is training by action. Training by action. It's a Greek word, paideia, which means to nurture the child. 
using actions. And the other word, uh, admonition, or, 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 you, or, or teaching, is translated here, or instructing, emphasizes teaching with words. You see, there's two ways to teach our children. One is to give, the, to give them words. We put things into their mind by words. But the other is we put things into their mind by actions. We teach them some things by actions. But those two should always go together. You see, the tendency today with many parents is they go to one extreme or the other. There's some parents that go to the extreme of, of they, they, they just use words. They have the idea that children are intelligent, and they are, the children are intelligent, and all you have to do is explain things to them. If you just tell them, you know, what, what the deal is, and then, then they, they learn. You just tell them. But if you tell them and they don't learn, what do those parents do? They tell them again a little bit louder. And the next time they tell them again a little bit louder, the next time they tell them, and they end up verbally abusing their children. But on the other side, there are parents who lean on the, on the, on toward actions, and they say, you don't, have to, you don't have to explain things to kids. You just tell them what to do. If they don't do it, you just make them do it. And what happens to those parents? They end up physically abusing their children. Now, neither one of those is the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is we use words and we use actions and we bring them together. Have you mothers ever experienced this? You're getting dinner ready. And little Johnny, who's 10 years old, is, is next door playing with his friend. And so it, you're, 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 almost, you're almost ready. And so you go to the door and say, Johnny, dinner. And Johnny just keeps on playing. And you go back and finish dinner. Then you go back to the door about five minutes later and you say, Johnny, dinner. And little Johnny just keeps on playing. And you go back and work on dinner. And you do this four or five times. But the fifth time you go to the door, you say, Johnny, get home. And little Johnny comes home. Now, why did Johnny come home on number five, but not on one, number one, two, three, four? Because Johnny has learned when Mama says, Johnny, get home. If he doesn't get home, Mama will come down there and take him by the hand and walk him home. And Johnny does not want Mama in the neighborhood, so Johnny comes home. <laughs> now, I am not opposed to calling children five times for dinner, if that's what you want to do. But if you would like for your child to come home on number one or number two instead of number five, all you have to do is to take the action that you used to do on number five and bring it back up to number one or number two, and you won't walk Johnny home but one time, Amen. and he'll come home on the first call and the second call. Now, please tell Johnny that you're going to change the paradigm. Tell him you went to church today and you learned something, and now he's going to come home on the second time. If he doesn't, you'll be there. Give him a little warning. Don't hit him broadside. Words and actions. I remember E.V. Hill, African-American pastor who pastored in California, Los Angeles, in the Watts area, in heaven now. But he tells a story about his own life. He said, I was 14 years old. I'd never had a drop of liquor in my life. And I was out on a Friday night with some of my friends. And they, they kept telling me, you need to try this. You need to try this. And he said, I got drunk. First time I'd ever had any alcohol at all, I got drunk. 14 years of age. He said, I went home that night. He said, I was so drunk. He said, I threw up on the floor in my bedroom. He said, my mother came in, and she smelled everything, and she knew the deal. And she closed the door. But he said, the next morning, bright and early, Mama opened my door and said, Evie, 
Get out of bed, clean up this mess, get yourself a shower. You and I are going on a trip. He said, Mom, I don't want to go on a trip. She said, Evie, I did not ask you. I'm telling you we're going on a trip. Now get up and clean this mess up and get yourself a shower. Evie said, I got up. I cleaned up the mess. He said, it was awful. It was awful. I got myself a shower, and Mom and I walked out the door. I had no idea where we were going. We got on the subway, and we rode for a long time, and then we got off. And I had, I had no idea where we were, but we were on Skid Row. He said, my mother would go down two nights a week and cook at the rescue mission. And so all the men on the street knew Mama. So my mama and I were walking down the street, and the men would say, Mama Hill, what you doing down here so early in the morning? And she said, uh, this is my son, E.V. He wants to live down here. I brought him down here to see what it's like. <laughs> he said, all day long, Mama and I walked Skid Row, and that night she took me to the rescue mission, ran me through the whole process with all the men that were there. He said, I never drank another drop of liquor in my life. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We use words and we use actions. I used to take my son when he was 13, 14, 15. I would take him to the detention center for teenagers about once a month on a Saturday night. And we'd go over and play ping pong with the kids that were in there. And then we'd drive home and I'd say, Derek, think about it, man. Those kids are your age. And they're not going home tonight. And then I'd clip out little clippings in the paper when I would see a teenager who got killed by a drunken driver or a teenager who got arrested for stealing while he was, un while he was drinking. And I said, Derek, look at this, man. This, this kid is your age, Derek. Isn't this sad? He, he's, he's in jail. Look at this kid. This kid got killed, Derek. This, isn't this sad? You understand what I'm doing? I'm trying to expose him with actions and words so that he makes up his own mind about which direction he's going to go. But I'm trying to influence him to walk in the right direction. So we use words and we use actions. This is why. Let me, let me say this. This is best done in the context of love. That is, if the, if the child or teenager does not feel loved by you, then they, they may well rebel against your instruction, whether it's verbal or whether it's by action. But if they feel loved by you, if they're convinced in their heart that you care about them and their well-being and they feel loved, they're far more likely to receive your instruction. This is why the five love languages are so important for parents, to learn the love language of the child or the teenager. You see, basically all parents love their children, but not all children feel loved. It's vastly different. We have to learn how to communicate love to each child so that they feel loved. And when they feel secure in your love, they're more open to your instruction. The fourth characteristic of a healthy family is the husbands will be loving leaders in a healthy family. Look at the words that are used to describe a husband. Verse 23 says he's the head and the savior. Verse 25 and 28 says he's to love and to give his life for his wife. Verse 29 says he's to feed and care for his wife. Verse 31 says he's to leave his parents so he'll have time to do that. And chapter 6, verse 4 says that he's to love and lead his children. That's a pretty colossal job. But don't ever separate the two words, loving leader. 
You see, some Christian husbands in the past have taken this passage and they've used non-biblical models to try to explain it. For example, sometimes they use military models. And they don't always say this to their wife, but the way they operate is, look, I'm the general. You, 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 you do what I say. Or they'll take, they'll take business models and they will say in their head, I'm the president and she's the vice president. No, 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 no. The biblical pattern is very clear. The husband is to be the leader of his wife like Christ is the leader of the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. He gave his life for the church. No, leadership is very different than what the secular idea of leadership is. But in a healthy family, the husband will be a loving leader. He will take initiative. That's what leaders do. He, take, he will take initiative to look out for the interests of his wife and of his children. Let, let me just give you a, a brief, quick summary of the characteristics of a, of a loving leader, a loving husband. Number one, a loving husband will view his wife as a partner, not as a trophy that he won, that he hangs on the wall, but as a partner in the relationship, one called alongside to walk with him through life. A loving husband will also communicate with his wife. You know, we, we hear a lot about silent men in a, healthy, in a healthy relationship, a husband is communicating. And there's two sides to communicating. He, he is talking. He's sharing his ideas and his thoughts and his feelings and his visions. But he's also listening to her. You see, it's exactly what God does. God communicates to us through his scriptures and through his spirit. But he also calls us to pray, which means we're talking to him. We're sharing our ideas and our thoughts and our feelings with him. That's what it means to communicate. So a husband becomes a communicator. He shares his thoughts and feelings, but he also listens to his wife. And, and he brings those things together in order to make good decisions. And a loving husband will put his wife at the top of his priority list. Not his job, not even the children, but his wife. Now someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God was supposed to be at the top. He is. But when you report for duty to God and you say to God, I'm here, I'm ready to serve you, what does God say if you're a husband? Love your wife. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. That's your first, that's your first priority when you report for duty to God. And then a loving husband will love his wife unconditionally. You see, sometimes, guys, our wives aren't lovely. Don't, don't give her an elbow. Just, <laughs> just know in your heart, sometimes she's not lovely. Sometimes she's not loving you. Sometimes she is not speaking your love language. But you love her unconditionally. See, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God loved us while we were dirty, rotten sinners. And he sent Christ to die for us. And so we're called upon with the help of God to love our wives even when they're not loving us. And just as the Bible says we love God because he first loved us, the same principle is true in marriage. It's the husband who's loving his wife unconditionally that's far more likely to have a responsive wife who turns back and chooses to love him. Number five, a loving husband is committed to discovering and meeting his wife's needs. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, says to husbands, Dwell with your wife according to knowledge, 
learn what your wife's needs are. Now, some guys say, well, Dr. Tim, I don't know how you do that. I mean, I don't understand women. Well, you could read a book, but I'll give you a better idea. Why don't you ask your wife? Honey, what needs do you have that I'm not meeting? She'll tell you. She'll tell you. Just, just stand there. She'll tell you. Yeah. She's the expert on herself. If you want to know what her needs are and how you can meet those needs, she'll be glad to tell you. And then a loving husband will seek to model his spiritual and moral values. You see, all of us have spiritual values and all of us have moral values. But sometimes what we say and what we say we believe is not where we live. And the further the gap between what we say we believe and what we actually do with our lives, the further the gap, the more difficult it is for the wife to respect you and for your children to respect you. But the closer those two are, and and listen, none of us are perfect, the closer those two are, what you say you believe and the way you live your life, the closer those two are together, the easier it is for your wife to respect you and for your children to respect you. So we need to be committed and be in process with God to help us bring our lifestyle up with what we say we believe. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you guys. It took me a long time in my life to get this together. I mean, before we got married, my wife and I were in love. You remember those days? Everything's beautiful when you're in love. I mean, absolutely beautiful. I mean, I I dreamed about how happy I would be when we got married. I mean, I could hardly wait to be that happy. I knew I was going into graduate school, and I thought, you know what, what'll happen is when we get married, I'll go off in the morning to school, and I'll come home in the afternoon, and I'll help her, and we'll we'll get cooked dinner together, and we'll do the dishes together, and then I'll sit down at the table, and I'll start studying, and she'll sit on the couch, and when I get through studying, I will lift my eyes, and our eyes will touch. But after we got married, I found out that my wife did not want to sit on the couch and watch me study. If I'm going to study, she wants to go downstairs to the apartment complex and meet people and talk to people and socialize. I'm up there by myself studying, thinking to myself, this is what it was like before we got married. (laughs) Only difference, I was in that dorm room a whole lot cheaper in this place. And before we got married, I had this idea that every night about 10.30, we were going to go to bed together. But after we got married, I found out that she had never thought about going to bed with anybody at 1030. Her idea was about 1030, you come up from your visitation and you read a book till midnight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why didn't you read the book while I read the book? Then we could go to bed together. And before we got married, I had this idea that every morning when the sun gets up, Everybody gets up. But after we got married, I found out that my wife did not do mornings. Didn't take me long not to like her. Didn't take her long not to like me. And we succeeded in being utterly miserable. You see, I I know what it is to be married and to think you made a big mistake. I know what it is to be married and be miserable. I know what it is to be married and think there's no good way out of this. Maybe that's why I have so much empathy 
for the people who come to my office and have no hope for their marriage. And, and it didn't turn around overnight. You see, what compounded the problem for me is that two weeks after we got married, I enrolled in seminary to study to be a pastor. And here I am miserable in my marriage studying to be a pastor. And I'm saying to myself and later to God, this is not going to work. There's no way I can be this miserable at home and get up and preach hope to people. <laughs> and the closer I got to graduation, the more, the more frustrated I became. Never forget the day that I finally said to God, I don't know what else to do. I have done everything I know to do, and it's not getting any better. As a matter of fact, if anything, it's getting worse, and I don't know what else to do. As soon as I prayed that prayer, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. You remember the story? And I heard, I heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You don't have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. Hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I remember what Jesus said when he stood up. Do you remember? He washed their feet. He stood up and said, I am your leader. And in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. In another place, he said, the greatest leader is the greatest servant. And I knew that was not my attitude. My attitude toward my wife in the early years was something like this. Look, woman, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. And she wouldn't listen to me. And I blamed her for our poor marriage. But that day, I got a different message. The problem is you don't have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. And I said, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I missed the whole point. And then I said, please give me the attitude of Christ toward my wife. In retrospect, it's the greatest prayer I ever prayed regarding my marriage because God changed my heart. Three questions made this practical for me. When I was willing to ask these three questions, my marriage radically changed. They're simple questions. Question number one. Honey, what could I do to help you? What could I do to help you? Question number two. How can I make your life easier? How can I make your life easier? Question number three. How could I be a better husband to you? How could I be a better husband to you? Do you know when I was willing to ask those three questions, she was willing to give me answers. Mm -hmm, she told me. And incidentally, she had no interest in my washing her feet. But she had a lot of other good ideas. Now keep in mind, this is long before I knew anything about the love languages. But she was essentially teaching me how I could serve her in meaningful ways. And do you know what happened? Not overnight, but within three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. We've been walking this road a long time now, and I have an incredible wife. In fact, I said to her the other day, you know, Carolyn, if every woman in the world was like you, there'd never be a divorce. I mean, why would a man leave a woman that's doing everything she can to help him? And my goal through these years has been to so serve my wife that when I'm gone, 
She'll never find another man that treated her the way I've treated her. The woman's gonna miss me. And you know what I believe? I believe this was God's plan. Listen, folks, God did not ordain marriage to make people miserable. God ordained marriage because God knows that two are better than one. And he made men and women for each other. And his plan is that we would reach out and serve each other. Then we can bless the world with our abilities. You see, guys, what I'm saying here is that we're the leaders. We're the leaders. We're to take the initiative in doing this. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't think there's many wives that are going to walk away from a man who has this attitude. How can I help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better husband? I don't think, I'm not going to say there are no wives that won't walk away, but I don't think many are going to walk away from a man like that. So we're to be loving leaders in a healthy family. That's what you'll see. I don't mean the guy's perfect. None of us are perfect. But I mean his heart, his heart is to be this kind of leader for his wife and his family. Then the, the last characteristic is in a healthy family, children will obey and honor their parents. Chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I want to suggest to you that obedience is a healthy word. Not a bad word, a healthy word. Obedience implies respect for authority. Obedience builds responsibility. And obedience builds character. One of the greatest problems in the public school system of our nation today is junior high and high school students have no respect for authority. Public school teachers tell me all the time, Dr. Chapman, I get very little teaching done. And you would not believe the things students say to me. Well, God's plan is that students learn how to respect authority while they're in the home. And how to accept responsibility. And how to have character. Be people of integrity. And obedience is a big part of that. You know, folks, uh, three-year-olds are not supposed to be in charge of households. For, for the most part, for the most part, our parents are older than we are. <laughs> and there's a good chance that with increased age, there's increased wisdom. It was God's plan that parents be the ones in charge of families. You, you know, I, I've seen this so many times, and people tell me about this, you know. It's Sunday morning, and you've got a three-year-old daughter, and you're getting ready to go to church. And you say, come on, honey, let's put your dress on. We're going to church. And the three-year-old says, no. Oh, honey, grandmother gave you this dress. No. Oh, honey, look at the pretty ducky-wuckies. No. How do you get a dress on a three-year-old? You stuff her in it. It's not that hard. There's two holes for the arm and one for the head. It takes about 30 seconds to dress a three-year-old. And I've seen parents take 20 minutes dressing a three-year-old. Now, how do we teach children obedience? Let me give you three suggestions on teaching obedience. Number one, we teach by our model. We teach by the way we obey the laws that we live under. It's 11 o'clock at night, you're, you're driving down the road, your 10-year-old son's in the back seat, you come to the sign and it says no left turn. 
But you know if you don't turn left, you've got to go three more blocks down the road before you can turn left. It's going to take a lot longer. It's 11 o'clock at night. There's no cars on the road. What are you going to do? <laughs> There's an honest guy. He's going to turn left. You see, when you, when, when you decide that you're going to obey that law and you're going to start, you're going to go beyond there and you're going to drive on and your 10-year-old your says, son, Dad, why didn't you turn back there? That's the way to our house. He said, Son, didn't you see the sign? It said no left turn. But dad, no cars are coming. No, dad, dad, dad. Son, we don't obey the laws just when there's no cars coming. We obey the laws all the time. And the sign said no left turn. You see, they learn obedience by watching us, whether we obey the laws under which we live. And then they also learn obedience by suffering the consequences of disobedience. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says this, If a man will not work, neither should he eat. Wouldn't that be a pretty good principle to teach your children? If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, in the adult world, that means obviously a person is able to work. And secondly, a person can get work. But we want to teach our children to work. It's a godly thing to work. So every child should have a job when they get, at least when they get to be four or five years old. They should have a job. And, and they should know what that job is very clearly, and they should also know the consequences of not doing their job. And you can even read this verse to them. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So you tell, you tell your son or your daughter, now, you know, daddy has a job and mommy has a job, and, and, and here's your job. Let's say that you're going to, their job is going to be to clean their room up before dinner every night. But you have to tell them what that means because they don't know what a clean room looks like. You have to tell them what do you want them to do, exactly what you want them to do, and you do it before dinner. And if you don't get your job done, you don't get to eat. And so you, you, you set that up, and, and it's 10 minutes before dinner, and what are you going to do? And they're, and, they're, and they're not cleaning the room up. You're going to go in there and say, oh, you only got 10 minutes, better hurry. You, get a good, or you only got 10 minutes, you're going to get dinner if you don't No! They are your children. They're very intelligent. You told them what the job was. You told them that they didn't get it done before dinner. They didn't eat that night. You don't say a word to them. They come to dinner, and there's no plate for them. And they say, where's my plate? And you say, honey, remember, uh, we gave you a job that had to be done before dinner, and if you didn't get your job done, you didn't get to eat, remember? Oh, I'm hungry. I bet you are, honey. We'll have breakfast in the morning. Now run along and play. Now, folks, listen to me. You will not hurt a child by, by letting them suffer one meal, the loss of one meal. But I tell you what you will do, you'll teach them how to work and how to obey you. You got a 16-year-old. You got a 16-year-old. Can you get license here at 16? You got a 16-year-old. He's, he's got his license now. Now, with that, with that freedom, there should be responsibility, right? Amen. So you, you need to lay out two or three things that are going to be responsibilities for them. And let's say one of them is going to be that every Saturday before noon, now that you can drive, if you want to drive the family car, then you, you will wash the car. Every Saturday before noon. Is that a fair deal? They'll, they'll buy into that. If I can drive the car, I mean, I, yeah, I'll wash the car, yeah. Now, if you don't get it washed before noon, you lose the car for two days. Okay? So Saturday comes around, and it's 15 to 12, and, and they're listening to their music. What are you going to do? Only got 15 minutes, but I got to No, 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 no. 
Let it ride. <laughs> Twelve o'clock comes and goes. Dirty cars in the, in, in, the, in the driveway. Don't worry about it. Two o'clock. That, uh, I need to go over. I need, I need the keys, Dad. I need to go. Oh, son, I'm so sorry. Remember the deal? You had to wash the car before noon, and it's dirty. You hadn't washed it, son. Oh, Dad, everybody's going to be over there. Everybody but you, son. <laughs> Listen, folks, he will not be happy, but I'll tell you this, you'll have the cleanest car in the neighborhood from that Saturday on. <laughs> Children learn obedience by letting them suffer the consequences of doing wrong. And they also learn obedience by rewarding obedience. Now I hear people say, well, I don't think you ought to reward a child just for doing right. Well, God does. Listen to this. Psalm 19, verse 11. He's talking about the Word of God. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God rewards his people who do right. I mean, the Bible's clear about that. God said, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'm not going to bless you. I mean, it's just that clear. So we reward them for doing right. So we teach obedience by those three ways, and obedience leads to honor. And honor is caught more than taught. Remember it said obey your parents and honor your parents. And honor is caught more than taught. They learn to honor you by watching you honor your parents. And you honor your parents by talking about the good things your parents have done for you, words of appreciation for your parents. You don't, don't, don't give your kids all the nasty stuff about what your parents didn't do. Look for something good about your parents and give words of affirmation behind their back. Talk about the kind things they did for you. And honor them by, if, if you don't live around them, write them letters or call them or keep up with them. Uh, and, and in those ways, you're helping your children learn how to honor you. Uh, my, uh, my mother lived to be 99. But the, I hope I have her genes. But the last 10 years, uh, I had to get sitters with her around the clock. She lived an hour away from me, but every week I'd go down and take her out to lunch and take her for a ride and talk to her and all of that. And I made sure that my two grown children knew what I was doing. Because someday I might be where Mama is. <laughs> now, I want, I want to say this. I want to take you back to... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the verse that said, don't get drunk. Because that verse also says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You are not likely to have a healthy family without the help of God. Because by nature, all of us are selfish. We're self-centered and we're selfish. And, and a selfish man and a selfish woman will never have a healthy marriage. And we can't deliver ourselves. We have to have forgiveness of God for our past failures, and we have to have the help of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be like Jesus, to reach out and love each other and serve each other. So what I'm saying is there's a, there's a spiritual dimension to this, and Christians have help. We have outside help in the person of the Holy Spirit to empower us to do these things. And young people and children, you are not going to be, you're not going to be healthy children without the help of God. Lord, one of your prayers should be, Lord, help me every day to learn to obey my mom and my dad and to learn how to honor them. Don't think I have to tell you 
in my opinion, the greatest wound in our country is broken families. And listen, I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty or bad. I know some of you have gone through divorce and you may be in a second or third or fourth marriage. Listen, wherever we are, we've got to turn this thing around. And we've got to learn how to start where we are and to make our families healthier as we move along. And if we can redeem the family in this country, we will redeem the country. And if we don't recapture the family in this country, then, then we, we, we will not improve. We will continue to go downhill. So I want to challenge you to put the family on the top burner of your mind and your thought and the time that you invest uh, with, with the family. This evening on BBN's Conference Pulpit, Dr. Gary Chapman concluded his week of messages on Conference Pulpit this evening with five signs of a healthy family. So how well did you do? Could you put a check mark next to each sign for your family? How is your family doing spiritually? How are you in your walk with the Lord? What is your spiritual standing? Are you right with God? Do you have assurance in your heart your sins have been forgiven and that you're on your way to heaven? For help in these questions concerning God's Word and the matter of salvation, go to bbnchat.org where your issues and concerns will be addressed. bbnchat.org